kind of ironic that everyone wants to go and listen to the really power-hungry, hardware-hungry topic of the day rather than talk about how we can tread more lightly. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Green.io with Gael Duez. That's me. Green.io is a podcast for responsible technologists building a greener digital world, one byte at a time. Every two Tuesdays, our guests from across the globe share insights, tools, and alternative approaches, enabling people within the tech sector and beyond to boost digital sustainability. Because accessible and transparent information is in the DNA of Green.io, all the references mentioned in this episode, as well as the transcript, will be in the show notes, both on your podcast platform and on our website, greenio.tech. Today, we're going to talk about a relationship, a deep, pivotal, and yet troubled relationship, open source and IT sustainability. Every person I talk in our sustainability field takes it as a no-brainer. Open source is good for sustainability. But which open source are we talking about? And is this correlation so strong? For instance, is an open source software always more frugal or sustainable in the way it is designed? We don't know. Let's investigate it. But there is at least one thing which is certain. Open source software is big. A recent post made by Sasha Lucioni, one of my absolute favorite thought leaders in AI, caught my eye. Sorry. A recent HBS study found that companies would have to spend 3.5 times more on their software development if open source were not around. And we're talking about an $8.8 billion estimated market. So open source is big. Let's see how it connects with sustainability. Today, I'm delighted to have two guests to talk about sustainability who has done open sources from the trenches. Olivier Conk is a fellow YouTuber. Now I can say, because yes, Green.io has launched its YouTube channel a week ago to offer a wider choice for accessing its content than you know, traditional podcast platforms like Apple or Spotify. Anyway, Olivier is the Architect Tomorrow host, a channel for enterprise and platform architects with a soft spot for sustainability, among other topics. He's also a tech strategist at Scott Logic, a software and data consultancy based in the UK, and has a significant track record in both IT and energy. As an example, he built carbon calculators, air quality databases, and industrial emissions reporting systems, which made him experience firsthand the issue of accessing open, transparent, and reliable data. Caddy is a software engineer with a math degree, so not easy to mess with her when it comes to data and statistics, and she is a driving force in this sustainable technology practice at Scott Logic, especially involved in the recent release of the Technology Carbon Standard at OpenUK uh, several weeks ago, a standard under Creative Commons license, of course. By the way, they will present it at Greenio London on September 19th this year, but that's a different story. Welcome, Olivier. Thanks a lot for joining Green Eye today. So are you on your bike or more comfortably sitting at your desk? No, today I'm, I'm, I'm stationary. I'm at my desk. Thanks for having <laughs> us, Gail. You're welcome. That's nice to have you on the show. And welcome, Cathy. Thanks a lot for joining Green Eye today as well. Maybe first question will be for you with your academic track record. When we talk about open source, it can actually cover a lot of different angles. Could you give us your definition or your way of approaching what is open source? Of course. So when I think about open source, I always think about open source software. 
So this is software whose source code is sort of freely available to modify, to distribute, deploy, even extend it into their own projects. So I think one of the key parts of open source is that it's transparent. You can view methodology behind the code. There's also other types of open source, which I think maybe Oliver could expand on. Yeah, no, happy to. So I think you've touched on open data, which is an important one, but then open hardware is really interesting as well when it comes to sustainability. So at the Open UK conference you mentioned, Gail, there was a great presentation about open compute, the open hardware sort of initiatives to ensure that there are sort of standards for hardware. And there are companies now taking the used hardware out of the big hyperscaler data centers and reusing it because it still has a life, right? The, the, the big hyperscaler is no longer want it, but you can easily get additional life out of it by hosting it in another data center and getting other people to run workloads on it. So there's a whole host of different strands of the open source kind of ecosystem, really. Software, hardware, data, significant ones. I think that would be a good way to define these pillars of data, software, and hardware. So Olivier, you started with hardware, not maybe the most obvious when we are in the IT world. What are the progress today that you've seen in open source hardware? Yeah, I'd love to throw to Katie to talk about the sort of data that's available, hopefully in the future in more of an open form about hardware. But in terms of hardware itself, I think there's some really interesting developments. Like I talked about the Open Compute Project, they have a whole sustainability division that's looking at the circularity of the hardware. And I think having open standards when it comes to hardware is really, really important because otherwise it's the compatibility challenge, right? If everyone is inventing their hardware to kind of be unique and proprietary, it just means we have a whole lot of potentially wasted components that won't work with other systems. And we're producing lots of you know, different types of components that only work with one particular platform. So I'm, I'm a really big proponent of the Open Compute Project, also because they're looking at things like, can we increase the ambient temperature of data centers, for example, to reduce their cooling requirements and, and things like that. So they're doing some really clever stuff in that area. But I think also open hardware is interesting when you look at the sort of hardware hacker sort of culture that's created as well, right? What can you run on a embedded device like a Raspberry Pi? You know, how can we extract every last efficiency out of a watt, you know, a couple of watts that a Raspberry Pi runs on? So I think there's there's some really interesting sort of things that come out of the constraints that that you impose when you, when you when you look at sort of consumer grade hardware and the open source movements around that. Yeah, and just just to not close, but to comment on the hardware topic, it really resonates with. The new battle of my good friend, uh, Tristan Nito, who's uh, one of the founders, actually, of Mozilla Europe. So he's, he's been in the game for quite a while. And he's, he's got his amazing talk now that he's given so, yeah, at several conferences already about, you know, Moore's law is dead. Now it's E-Rome. So that's kind of, you know, reverse, <laughs> reversing the Moore name. And the idea is every year you don't double the size of your computing power every year you divide by two the size of your code so that every year you are able to run your code on lighter and lighter machine which means older and older and older machine which means saving you know, potentially um, millions avoiding building new computers that actually don't need but anyway Katie, you wanted to elaborate a bit more on the on the data side i think this is one of your main battle isn't it yeah, so especially with sort of manufacturers of hardware, the data they provide themselves, often the figures they give in these, it's not clear on how they actually calculate them. So for example, if you wanted to find out like the typical energy consumption, they might provide this figure, but it's hard to find out where they're getting this from, like how long are they running the device to arrive at this figure. Additionally, there's other sort of documentation that these manufacturers provide, like 
product carbon footprint, which gives like the emissions from each use stage of the life cycle. So manufacture, transportation, usage, end of life. But again, it's just not clear how they get these figures. So the benefit of open source is having that methodology transparent to everyone to see how these figures are arrived at. Yeah, the big issue if you've got a quite diverse hardware estate is that we might add Apple and Orange because the way one manufacturer would calculate things is not the same one than the others. And eventually, these numbers don't make sense at all. What do you see as a potential path to overcome this, this very big difficulty in data sustainability? I think open source is key. Just having a sort of level playing field for the methodology that we use to calculate these things. So, I mean, I think we'll probably discuss it later, but like tools like Cloud Carbon Footprint, sort of having that methodology that you can use across cloud providers. So it's more comparable, easier to track your improvements across the estate. And I mean, that's just one part of the standards. Katie's touched on a really important point there, which is at the moment, because the manufacturers can essentially almost make up, well, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit to make a point, but because they can almost make up their methodology, their numbers, it almost becomes a marketing exercise to make it look like their product consumes less energy. And it's a bit of a game, right? So if you come up with a very creative way of measuring the, the power consumption of your device, I mean, we've seen servers, for example, with different sort of load ratings, you know, and energy consumption of different load ratings. And it's and, and each manufacturer seems to sort of measure at a different load. So some are at 20%, some are at 80, some are at 100 it's like, okay, well, you can make yourself look cleaner by just presenting the, the characteristic that, that, ha- that your model of hardware tends, tends to perform best at. And of course, then you don't really know whether you're making an improvement or you've just bought better marketing uh, when you change suppliers. So that, that, I think that's why what Katie's saying is really important. Like this apples for apples comparison is super important because we already have the same with cloud. Like you run AWS's cloud um, carbon uh, tooling versus Azure's versus Google's. They all, they all have different methodologies and so they'll they're not comparable. And that, that's a point with Cloud Carbon Footprint, and I'm very happy you raised, both of you actually, you raised the point, is that, you know, true, um, it's, it's a very powerful tool. Uh, Cameron was on the show uh, last year. I'm, I'm a big advocate of uh, CCF among other open source tools. But at the end of the day, they have to recalculate things that should be provided by um, by hyperscalers. And, and I think here we've got two very serious issues. The first one is the methodology Tools like open source tools like uh, Boavista, uh, Cloud Scanner, or CCF. Uh, obviously, um, the methodology is transparent, so at least we know how they manipulate the data. But then there is the issue of the data itself. I mean, do we have the granularity to calculate things in 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 a wise enough way? And I'm I'm not always sure because for cloud, but Katia will let you elaborate on it. For cloud. It, it, it's always a question of transforming financial data, almost all the time, financial data into sustainability data. And some data would be more, I would say, accurate, like starting with CPU usage or GPU usage or whatever. But what's your thought on it, Katie? So with regard to cloud, one of the key issues is that each cloud provider, they have their own tooling, but the methodology is not the same. So... I think one of the main challenges is to do with sort of greenhouse gas scopes. So I think AWS especially, they don't include scope three. I think that's one of the benefits of the cloud carbon footprint tool is that it provides a way to at least try and estimate that proportion allocated to scope three and sort of compare 
on the same level with those from like Google as you are. I think Google does provide data on scope three emissions. So I think it's sort of just picking the right methodology for your estate. So for example, if you just had Google Cloud, maybe you just go with their tool since it's probably more up to date and includes scope three. Whereas if you had multi-cloud or AWS, you might want to look at a tool like Cloud Carbon Footprint. But I think the point, Gail, around using financial numbers to come up with sustainability metrics is an interesting one. And clearly it'd be great if we could trust the native tool, like Katie said, like use the Google tool, the AWS tool, because they have access to the underlying data that allow them to more accurately calculate the emissions. The trouble is there's a trust thing there, isn't there? I think it's how transparent are they being and, and how much do we trust them to kind of calculate this in a fair way rather than just putting forward you know, a polished view of their emissions, you know, a, a managed kind of view of their emissions rather than reality. And so this is where I think the open approaches really would help because if they were open and transparent about what went into providing the service that you pay for, you would be able to make an inform, more informed decision. And I think the calculations would be far more robust than basing them just on billing data. Ideally, you find situations where you save money and you save carbon, but those two aren't necessarily you know, going to go hand in hand in all cases. Yeah, absolutely. I had the the issue with a client very recently when we, we made the calculation that the, the, the bill will go up by 20%. And then you have also the question of how do you calculate a clean energy uh, region? Because I, I don't know if you've seen the, this beautiful post from Mark Butcher migrating from Scotland to uh, Ireland, where, where the, you know almost a time six a difference uh, in, in carbon intensity of the electricity grid. Actually, if you do very basic mass, you will still double your uh, carbon footprint. Still, I would like to go back to, okay, so we, we claim that open source uh, and, and open data, because we are 100% on this open data um, sub-part of open source here, should be there. But the question is, why not? One of the pushback I've heard from Iceberg representatives is like the business um, secrets and that they don't want to share because it's sensitive data. But what your thought on it? And do you believe there are all other... Yeah, obstacles, I would say, on the road toward more transparency, or at least from the data perspective? I think that sort of garden data for a commercial reason, especially with regards to sustainability, it's just not really the way forward. I think to sort of make sustainable software key and forefront, um, we really need to be transparent so people can build on the methodology. It's not really any good sort of reinventing the wheel when there's already so many good established like data points methodologies out there i think as well open source projects they have such a large user base um especially compared to some like enterprise softwares especially internal sort of company softwares not always but sometimes so i think any efficiency gains that we make to open source software can have a real downstream impact yeah, Katie's kind of moved on to one of the other the other key kind of conversation points we have around open source, right? But before we before before we go there, my take on what you're saying, I think the the commercial pushback is an interesting one, and I'm not convinced it's as simple as if we just reveal some more data, all of a sudden the cat is out of the bag and everyone will know how we're running our data center. I think I think the reality is running a modern data center, certainly for a hyperscaler, is super super complex, right? And they're even using AI to optimize them. I like Google and Meta, for example, have used AI right to optimize their cooling and stuff like that. So, I think to think that if you just release some some data about your energy consumption and your you know the the the, the high level waste footprint and water footprint and all that sort of stuff, 
that that's going to be commercially disadvantageous if, if, if you release that information. Maybe to a point, because it will reveal perhaps to your competitors how efficiently you're running things. But yeah, I, I think it's just an excuse that, that they're hiding behind, quite, quite frankly. And I guess, I, I think what will happen if, if uh, they continue to drag their feet is the EU will regulate. And I think the EU is already regulating, right? If you look at the data center regulation that's coming out, if you're running a data center over a certain power consumption now or in the near future, you will have to start report, reporting on more data. So I think that the, the, the reality is if companies continue to drag their heels on being transparent, regulation will follow. And it's probably better to kind of get ahead of that. Yeah, you're mentioning the uh, energy efficiency uh, directive. And I, actually, I will put the link in, uh, in the show notes as everything that we've discussed uh, so far. But is it the only way forward? It's okay to regulate. I'm, I'm a big advocate of uh, better norms and more transparency. But do you believe this is the only trigger that will force like big actors uh, to become more transparent? Is there, is there any other way? I think Google have shown that this can be a competitive edge, right? I think pretty sure that Google is still the only ones that give you near real-time carbon intensity information of the different uh, regions that they operate in. Why are Google doing that? In my view, they're doing that because they are probably still number three in terms of enterprise cloud adoption. Like it's AWS and Azure, depending on which stats you look at, are the leading two, right? Google is is still trying to compete. So in order to compete, I think they are they are offering more transparency. They're offering you know, more options around sustainability than, than, than the other two are, arguably. And so I think, I think this can be a competitive edge. I do wonder whether, you know, if Google went a bit further in the near future, the EU companies might all of a sudden go, do you know what, we're just going to, we're just going to adopt Google Cloud because they just give us the data we need for regulatory compliance, for, for example. So I think the regulatory lever can be really powerful, but you're right, it, it, it probably can be too big a stick at times when, actually industries can get ahead of that by just saying, you know what, we'll just be a bit more transparent, a bit more open, a bit more sensible and pragmatic about how we operate. And then that way the regulators won't have to force this out of us. I think it's pretty obvious that the European Union has a, I don't remember who coined the, the word, but I really love it, the long arm of, um, of, of EU regulations and that you also see in California, et cetera, that when the EU regulate actually doesn't stop at the European border and it goes pretty much everywhere in the world, as we've seen with the, the privacy laws. First, the European Union is not as powerful, economically speaking, as it used to be. Even it's still a very, very big market, obviously. But what about the UK? Because you're both based in the UK. The UK is not a European Union member anymore. But on, on this specific aspect, do you think that whenever the European Union regulates, somehow it will lead the UK to adopt a similar pattern or is it a different way of doing things in the UK now? So I think the reality is as much as the UK thinks it's left the European Union, the reality is we still live in Europe and Europe is one of our biggest trading partners. And so therefore, whatever Europe does, we'll almost certainly have to follow in some regard. So I think, you know, we haven't abandoned GDPR, for example, we still have that, you know, in our law, a very similar law to that. And I think it's a matter of how much do we want to sort of stay in harmony with our biggest trading partner or not. And I think we've got political changes probably happening, you know, in, in the next few months for the UK. And it will be interesting to see quite quite what happens there. Regarding the, the link that you made between, you know, kind of transparency competition, I would say, on one hand and regulation on the other. I think it, it's a very interesting point that one will lead the other. Do you believe that, except maybe for Google, there are other cases where transparency could become a competing advantage? I definitely think hardware like like the end user hardware 
I, I honestly think if there are organizations that are being far more transparent about the supply chain and you know the kind of full life cycle analysis of their products, and they do that in a way that you don't have to fight free PDFs and, and extract information from data sheets, but actually they perhaps provide an API or an open standard or something where you can just get that information, I think that fairly soon will be a competitive advantage. And so I think the first organizations that, that, that do, do, do that will win. I also look at companies like Fairphone that are, you know, that have that are more modular and repairable with the right to repair act that the EU has also just put out i honestly think that there is scope for innovation in in repairability and it will be really interesting to see for example how apple responds to to that regulation and do they do it to the minimum or do they go beyond and 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 be more transparent about supply chain and so on at the same time i think that would be amazing if if someone chooses to innovate on that angle and i and i think they would find a lot of success in in that space in honesty we'll see I think I think some kind of pattern usually with Apple is like they pour tens of millions of uh, dollars in lobbying against, then they drag their feet a bit, and then when everyone starts to follow, they put ten and millions dollars on moving forward and then claiming they're the best. And I simply don't understand why they don't skip the two first part of the dance. <laughs> but that's a different story. So we, we we talked a lot about hardware, data transparency, methodology transparency. But Cathy, you mentioned before the correlation, not or not that obvious correlation between open source software and sustainability. And, and please, could you elaborate a bit on it? Yeah, of course. So as I was saying, open source projects can often be adopted widely by many organizations and can also be extended or used in their own projects. So I think due to this scale, sort of any efficiency gains or sustainability improvements that are made to the code can have real impact downstream. So like a ripple effect, what might seem like quite a small optimization, like in the core code base can have massive impacts downstream on the community. So sort of reduce the environmental impact across the ecosystem. So sort of reduce the environmental impact across the ecosystem. Baking in these sustainable practices into the actual open source code in the same way sort of other non-functional requirements like security are already in. It would be hugely beneficial, something that we're missing at the moment. Do you have some examples of maybe communities, open source community on, on a dedicated software starting to pay attention to that or is it way too early stage at the moment? I think it's pretty early, right? But the comparison I would make to this is a bit like when you buy your laptop, what power profile does it ship with, right? Does it ship with the high performance profile enabled by default or the or the power saving profile enabled by default? And I would I would encourage all open source software contributors and maintainers to think about that same sort of thing. When someone downloads your software or, it, or includes their library in, in their software, what mode is it running in by default? And does someone have to specifically go and and tune it for either efficiency or or for performance or for security because like for security now it's pretty frowned upon right if you ship your open source software in a way that's unsecure by default and i would say that like katie was saying like encouraging us to to think about our open source projects and and, and making them run in a, an efficient way by default and maybe if you really need to crank the performance out of it then yeah you go and tune and you go and make optimizations but that 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 is something i think that could have a massive impact and katie's right the the scale at which open source libraries and software are deployed means that any savings that we make there are going to massively outweigh perhaps any optimizations we might make on our enterprise code. So yeah, we do a lot of work with with big government and big, big financial services customers, but even still, internal applications for them are hundreds of users, maybe thousands of users. 
they're not the millions of users that open source projects have. So where do you focus your optimization efforts as an open source developer? Do you, you know, do you optimize your own code that's running on your own, you know, company uh, systems, or do you optimize open source? So I would say, you know, as far as coding efficiency goes, think about what, what code you're optimizing. And especially knowing that we have only to target like 5% of uh, open source developers because it's like 5, 10% contribute to almost 90, 99% of the code base. So we can target <laughs> yep. very active developers. M my, my question would be, is a bit different. As an end user, like obviously a developer, but you know, downloading some kind of libraries, whatever, etc. Do I have today all the information? And honestly, the answer is no. <laughs> so I'm kind of self-answering my question. But what would it require to be able to understand? Okay, this is kind of a frugally designed or low-carbon open-source code. I mean, there is nothing in. I mean, I'm pretty sure, like 99.99% of the MD and GitHub or, or any other repository, they don't mention the carbon footprint at all or any kind of environmental approach. There is this project, I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud at the moment, but is the impact framework provided by the Green Software Foundation the right approach or any other tools could be used or leveraged to, to access this information? What, what do you think about this? I think the impact framework shows potential to have a standardized way of calculating things. It's very early and we're excited because we're going to be part of Carbon Hack this year and that's all about the impact engine framework. And we're going to be, for example, probably looking at how you measure S3, the impact of S3, uh, the Amazon S3 service using impact framework. I think what, what we need though is, is, is more of a standard and you've perhaps given me a bit of an idea here of where the tech carbon standard that we launched recently could go, right? I mean, we've... We've, we've primarily designed it as a way of navigating the technology space and working out where your emissions live in the upstream operational and downstream sort of categories that we've sort of touched on through, throughout this episode. But actually, I do wonder whether there is almost a metric that you should be looking for in each of those. And it, it, we're signposting open source tools and, and standards, but, but I do wonder if ultimately that's my, that might be where we lead is giving people a, a, an easy, almost like a eco-label for software or a bit like the calorie counting you get on, on, on food, right? We need something as simple as that for someone to go red, amber, green on, on a library or, you know, a piece of software. I, I, we're not there yet, but I, I, hope, I hope we get there. Yeah, I think that was the idea behind the API Green Score main French companies. It's an open source approach as well, but it's more like a best practices checklist. Like, okay, it does, you know, is my API management clean? Do I provide information on carbon, et cetera? And then you've got a score. I kind of like this approach this approach. It's very straightforward. Still, it requires pretty transparent methodology and data to be sure that we compare Apple with Apple once again. I'm, I'm really about fruit salad. Cathy, <laughs> uh, as a developer, because you are, uh, what would you like to have when, when you use open source code to, to make sure that you're using a very efficient one? I think the idea that you discussed, Oliver, was really quite a good one about sort of the comparisons to a calorie counter I think having that sort of metric just so you, when you're looking and researching what you actually want to use in your code you don't really have to dig in too much that would be really useful if you could just see high level what sort of sustainability level is this library got for example and for a developer you want to be looking at how you can code so I think learning from how upstream dependencies open source libraries have been coding efficiently is a really good way to learn I think that exemplar approach is really interesting. It would be nice to see 
yeah, those sort of standards sort of applied. And I think in most cases they are. You could argue they are right because lots of uh, open source libraries have been optimized for performance, which means they should be fairly efficient. But that's necessarily that's a big assumption, right? And mm. so I think what we're talking about here is something that validates that and ensures that you know that that there are, there isn't you know excessive memory usage or excessive CPU consumption, perhaps you know. Uh, polling, you know, anti-patterns. So, so I think I think maybe we we aren't that far away from maybe being able to take some of the Green Software Foundation principles and and standards and patterns, and 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 maybe running some tests because that's the, that's the other part of this. We talk a lot about coding, but the testing is really important as well. And so we're equally looking at other software development lifecycle roles like testing to say, should there be a test suite for? For, for efficiency, for you know, energy consumption of code. So part of your pipeline, you know, your builds break if energy consumption is over a certain level or efficiency is not, not hitting the bar. So th- this is the sort of bigger picture software development lifecycle thinking we're also doing beyond just sort of classifying emissions into their different buckets. It's also thinking about yeah, how, how does each role play its part when it comes to building more sustainable software. I'm very enthusiastic about what you're describing. Actually, I know that there are a few projects in CI/CD pipeline trying to automate it. So full disclosure, I've launched a project with my good friend, uh, Benoit Petit at the Boa Vista, Boa Vista Association. And, uh, but that's not public yet, but we've released the version zero of uh, our yeah, repository of green IT tools because we want to increase the transparency in the landscape. So the idea is not to assess if the tool is good or bad, but just to assess how transparent is the methodology, the data used and all the information that will help you know, people choose the right tool. And that's something that I will talk a bit more at Green IO Singapore and in forthcoming podcasts. It's really a transparency battle. It's not an assessment, quality assessment battle. And uh, a good practical exercise to close the podcast. How would you launch this open source initiative if, if you launch it? Well, we'd certainly come back on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> if you have us. Katie, what are your thoughts? You're more in the development world than I am these days. I think in the sort of same way as projects like Green Software Foundation, I think sort of co-pilot tool is it's the same sort of thing. It's to the way that Green Software Foundation have sort of promoted their principles and their green code and patterns, sort of promote the tool in the same way. But when you launch an, an open source project, I mean, you have an idea, you want to launch, obviously you will create a GitHub repository and, you know, the license blah 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 etc okay but hey you're still two or three of you okay i don't i don't know how many people actually how many people will join from uh, scott logic in for, for that kind of project will, will, will it be only the two of you we have a team of, where we have a te- we have a team of about 10 people working in this space at the moment but people have rotated in and rotated out as, as we've got a consultancy right so when we have client projects people will go on to client client work so it, it very much depends on you know what what client projects are going on at any one time as to how many people are involved in our R&D initiatives. But, but ultimately, we're, we're rolling out sustainable software thinking across the whole of the company, and that's about 500, pe- about 500 people in total, about 450 or so consultants. Not all of those are developers, of course. But this, this mindset and this, these, these best practices are being, yeah, being, being, being pushed out across, across the organization because we don't want this to be a bolt-on. We want this to be how we just work by default back to the sensible defaults thing. So I think, yeah, it's launching it. We'd almost certainly launch it internally. We'd, be, we'd alpha test it ourselves. And then I think we would, we would look to kind of work with friendly clients and then, yeah, kind of use, use open source ecosystems we're part of, like Linux Foundation and Finos, 
So shout out to Finos that we do a lot of a lot of work with. They're, they're a great organization for financial services, open source adoption. So I think yeah, it's kind of use the community, right? I think would be would be the straightforward answer to that one because that's the, that's the beauty of the open source effort, right? Is it's it's always community driven. So kind of in, embrace that community approach. And does it respond well, the community, to that kind of project? Well, it's interesting, right? My presentation at Open UK, I would have hoped for a slightly larger audience, but I was competing with AI. You know, there's a lot of AI talks, and so everyone, I think if you put an AI talk on, everyone wants to go to, to, to that talk right now because it's just so hot. And yeah, so it's kind of ironic that, that everyone wants to go and listen to the really power-hungry, hardware-hungry topic yeah. of the day rather than talk about how we can, we can tread more lightly. I do fear there is a culture war, Gael, happening. Like some of the tech meetups I've been going to recently, there's almost two camps. There's there's people that are almost falling for the techno optimist manifesto from Mark Andreessen Horowitz, mm. and and just and just think growth and energy consumption and increasing energy consumption isn't a problem. And there are others who are more more aware of the issues. We don't have endless power sources that are renewable, sadly. I'm living a Jekyll and Hyde personality day by day at the moment, right, Gael? Because I am spending almost equal amounts of time on AI R and D and sustainability R and D. But yeah, I, I, I do struggle with this. And in fact, I've got a blog in drafts that I'm not sure I'll publish, but it, it's sort of talking about this conflict I have between you know, technological progress using AI and, and then on the other hand, the, all the power consumption and the sustainability impacts that that, 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 that will have. So I, I, I do have this sort of schisms in, in like, you know, in should we be embracing this thing or should we be being more cautious? It's it's a really fascinating time, I think, to be a technologist right now. Like the different challenges and opportunities that we have in front of us. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and I, th I fully agree with you. And I think actually it's also a good thing not to be made in one piece of food, I would say. And because our world is complex, it requires subtility. And even if it's not very comfortable, coming with subtle approaches of uh, the big questions that we have and not having like a you know, one single answer for every question. I think it's a good approach, whether it's AI or I don't know how to say it, but yeah, cut, kill the tech or whatever approach or go back to uh, <laughs> Stone Age. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to use it as a caricature, but you see, you see my point. It is, we're, we're thinking complex and it's very uncomfortable because I, I think we are more and more aware of how complex is the world we live in. And that's just us adapting to the reality of our world. So quite a lot has been covered here. To close the podcast as usual, I would love both of you to share one piece of good news, sustainably related, even being related, but sustainably at large is cool. Something that make you happy about our path towards a more sustainable world, I would say. I think for me, because I'm quite new to the tech space, especially the technology sustainability space, I think just seeing the community growing, it's really positive. Seeing all of the initiatives that are out there, whether they're open source, I think just like seeing the work that our team's been doing as well, the Tech Carbon Standard, I think it's all really positive. It's going in the right direction. I'm, not, I'm going to choose something that's not tech, but it's energy. So I'm, I'm as much, probably as much an energy nerd as I am a, a technology nerd. And the thing that really excited me the other day was the announcement of quite a big electricity interconnect between Denmark and the UK, right? And this, this I hadn't heard about this, but a huge investment, like we're talking billions of, of pounds or euros investment to create this undersea link between Denmark and the UK. And it makes a lot of sense because both Denmark and the UK have a lot of wind power. And because of the time difference between Denmark and the UK, our peak electricity demands are at a different time. So there's a lot of sense in this interconnect because when it's windy in Denmark, 
and there's lots of demand in the UK, they can send their wind power to the UK and vice versa. And so I, I, I didn't know this thing was even being built and it's gone live literally in the last couple of weeks. And, I, and it's, it's significant. Like I think it's like a giga, at least a gigawatt of, of interconnect. So a serious DC power interconnect between the two countries. And that, and that just like, made my day. So I was like, you know, we've been rolling back on various sort of environmental policies, but this has just gone live and I didn't even know they were building it. And that's really cool. And that's actually, that's so fun because I uh, stumbled on a map of all these new connects being built across Europe, both for sustainability reason, also for security reason after the Russian aggression against uh, Ukraine and all the mm -hmm. energy issue that it raised. And that was mind blowing that there are already a lot being built and even more being planned. And as you say, that's just perfect. It's sharing energy and yeah, low carbon energy as much as you can. So I really love it. I, I think I, I will try to find the map and, and put it in. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, sharing it. That, that made my day as well. Super cool. So it was great. I will put all the references in the show notes as usual. And what is also super cool that like, there is like a very good deal of chance that we will meet in London uh, in September. So thanks for joining. Talk to you soon. Keep up this amazing work with a very open source uh, technology carbon standard and sustainable co-pilot ID. I love it. So let's stay in touch. Thanks a lot for joining and have a very nice and sustainable day. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this Green IO episode. If you enjoyed it, share it and give us five stars on Apple or Spotify. We are an independent media relying solely on you to get more listeners. Plus, it will give our little team Jill, Mabel, Taney and I a noise booster. In our next episode, we will talk about carbon-aware computing. It seems to be the no-brainer action for every CTO or head of cloud ops to decarbonize a tech stack, and yet. Benefits at micro level and the impact at scale might not be that well aligned. To discuss it, we will welcome two veterans of our show, and two veterans in green coding as well, Hannah Smith, CEO of the Green Web Foundation, and Ismael Velasco, founder of the Adora Foundation. Stay tuned. By the way, Green.io is a podcast and much more. Visit greenio.tech to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, read the latest articles on our blog, and check the conferences we organize across the globe. The next one is in Singapore on April 18th, and you can get a free ticket using the voucher Green.io VIP. Looking forward to meeting you there, to help you, dear responsible technologists, build a greener digital world, one byte at a time.